So let's see. There should be um, on your sheet. Let's read together our passage from Isaiah, and then I'll pray. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would send forth your word, that as we study your holy word, your written word, we would draw near to you. We would know your eternal word, your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Grant that we might know him more fully. Grant that we might have eternal life through him and uh, that our lives would be indeed changed and marked um, for the rest of our lives from this day forward. So we ask all this. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we are entering into chapter 10 in John's Gospel. We're beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read it in just a moment. But for right now, let's remember where we've been. Remember that in chapter 7 and 8, we were down in Jerusalem with Jesus. Jesus was there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, while he was there, he was engaging with the religious authorities and the crowds. Um, about different things. There was a lot of theological discussion back and forth, and he was gradually, he was trying to get them to see who he is, to see his real identity as the eternal word of God. And so he's trying to bring them along, and he's using images from the Feast of the Tabernacles um, to help them see that he is, in fact, the um, the true water, the living water, that living water is available through him. He is like the rock that followed the Israelites in the desert. Um, and so um, he is the source of life. Um, he said that in chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Then in chapter 8, he also used another image from the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he said, I am the light of the world. Light was also important as they remembered that pillar of fire that had led the Israelites in the desert at night. That was how God directed them and drew them safely into the promised land. And so light is associated throughout scripture with salvation and with God's holiness and majesty and with revelation and all sorts of good things. And so specifically here, Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world. He is the source of all salvation for the whole world. Um, And what happens at the end of chapter 8? He continues to make these claims that appear um, to the religious leaders to be outrageous. Do you remember that? What happens? Uh, They start to talk about Abraham and um, who is their father. And um, at the end of chapter 8, verse 59, what happens? Yep, they try to kill him. Um, He has said, before Abraham was, I am, which is a pretty outrageous claim. He existed before Father Abraham, um, their their blessed and holy ancestor, and um, and our ancestor by faith. So they pick up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hides himself and goes out of the temple. It's not his time yet, is it? 
Um, and there then we see in chapter 9, we're still within this context of the Feast of the Tabernacles, but we're not really sure where this, where this is taking place. And remember what happens in chapter 9. We looked at that the last two weeks. That there, Jesus heals a blind man. He restores sight to a man born blind. We see that in the first seven verses. And then what happens after that? Do you remember? They found his parents. There's this long interrogation. How did this happen? Why did he do this on the Sabbath? Who is this man? Um, and remember what his parents say. What do his parents do? We're not getting involved in this because they were afraid of the consequences. They were afraid that they would be cut off and excommunicated from the religious community. They said, go ask. They passed the buck. Go ask him. And then he comes in and what, you know, they ask him before they ask his parents. And then they ask him again. They bring him back in and ask him again after they've asked his parents. What kind of, what do they really want to know? They want to know about Jesus. They want to know who is this guy. And remember, the blind man was blind when he saw Jesus. He went and washed and came back and Jesus wasn't there anymore. So he's, I don't know who he is. And I don't know where he comes from. That's what they also want to know. Why does he think he can do this kind of healing on the Sabbath? Who does he think he is? And what happens with the blind man? Does he, how does he respond to this pressure? He's bold and he's kind of saucy, right? He gets sarcastic with them. Do you want to become his disciples too? Um, I don't I don't know who this man is, but what I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they keep pressing him. And eventually his sauciness gets him thrown out. He's excommunicated. It says that he's cast out of their presence. And that implies that he's also cast out of the synagogue, the meeting place for Jewish believers. And then Jesus encounters him. Jesus finds him. How wonderful that Jesus found him. He couldn't see. He didn't remember what Jesus looked like. He would have known his voice. But how are you going to pick out one voice in a crowd? And Jesus um, finds him and challenges him. What, um, what does he say when Jesus tells him that Jesus himself is, um, is the Son of Man? Jesus says in 35, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the formerly blind man answers, I believe. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. Success. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. And you see that as this blind man has gone on this journey that's brought him to faith, um, so too it's clear that the Pharisees in encountering Jesus, um, their blindness is exposed for what it is. They think they know the law and the prophets. They think they know that special revelation given to them by God throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and yet they fail to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And um, it's that failure to recognize them that shows them to be blind, in fact. So there's that sense in which this whole passage from last week is like, uh, it's, it's an event that really happened, it's a miracle, it's a sign that points to Jesus' identity, but also it's almost like this parable that, that's enacted that really happened that's about blindness that's more than just physical, but spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. So there's already this conflict going on 
with Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's that right there that we pick up in chapter 10. The context of the conflict, the believing and unbelieving, um, will then make Jesus' words in chapter 10 um, probably even more offensive or more clearly directed to the religious leaders um, in Jerusalem. So we're going to look at that um, in just a moment. First of all, we're going to get, and I put this on your questions from last week, we're going to get a couple of I am statements in this passage for today. Do you remember, um, it's kind of like naming the seven dwarfs, do you remember what the other I am statements are in the Gospel of John? Let's see, we had one in chapter 6, remember, with the feeding of the 5,000? I am the bread of life. Here we're going to get, I am the the good shepherd, right? We're also going to get another one in chapter 10. This one is one that we don't always think about very often. I am the door or the gate of the sheep. I am the door or the gate. Isn't that an interesting one? We don't talk about that one very much. We, that one is in verse, sorry, chapter 10, verse 7. We're going to read it in just a minute, so it'll, it'll be right there. In your, in, there are other ones going on later into chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Remember, that's before the tomb of Lazarus. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we have all of these wonderful statements of Jesus, and when he says the words, I am, it's very likely that he's actually saying the divine name of Yahweh, which is something that no um, faithful Jew would ever have said. Because God's name, even if you were to pronounce God's name correctly, they believed that if you were to pronounce the name that God gave to Moses when he was revealing himself to him on Mount Sinai, Remember, Moses asks to know his, well, or it's not, excuse me, it's not on Mount Sinai, it's before he gets the people, or it is on Mount Sinai, but before he brings them out of Egypt, he says, well, who am I going to say sent, sent me? Who are you? And he said, I am who I am, right? I am. God is. And within that simple verbal construct is the idea of eternity. God is now. God was, I am who I am, I was who I was, and I will be who I will be. That sense of past and future all tied into the very person of God, that he is outside of time, um, and he is that steady, stable um, being. He's God. Um, And so that idea behind God's own name, Yahweh, we say Yahweh, and it's a transliter, it's, it's a our English way of saying the Hebrew for I am, and yet um, faithful Jews believe that they sort of look at us Christians saying Yahweh all the time. They say, well, it's a good thing you don't know how to pronounce that name because God would strike you dead if you pronounced it correctly. Um, There's this belief that the name of God is so holy that no one should, no one will ever be able to pronounce it and live. Um, And so you see throughout the Hebrew scriptures that wherever it said Yahweh, they would cross it out and put in Adonai, which is Lord, just because in the reading of the scriptures, they didn't want anyone to try to say the name of God. So pronouncing, they would use all these constructs to avoid saying I am in their verbal speech. So Jesus here doesn't avoid these 
constructs. He says, I am, which is a very clear statement that he is connecting himself with Yahweh. And then he's qualifying this I am, who is he, with um, a, a direct object. And the direct object in these seven statements in John gives us more information that's very helpful for us who are enfleshed, imaginative human beings to say, okay, what does it mean that God is, that Jesus is the bread of life? What does it mean that Jesus is the door to the sheep? What does it mean that he's the good shepherd? All of these things help us understand who God the Father is and who Jesus himself is as well. So we're going to look at those um, two I am statements that we have in this passage and find out what do they tell us about Jesus. Any questions about that before we move on? Okay, great. Let's read. We're going to read from chapter 10, verse 1 through 2021. And um, let's just take turns. So feel free to, does anybody, is anybody there and they'd like to start off reading and read? Great, Donna. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. <clears throat> and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which have not this hole. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The commandment I received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. 
Many of them said, he has a demon, and he is mad. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the sayings of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It was the feast of the dedication of Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. But you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Great. Thank you. And um, now, is there anything that strikes all of you about this passage as we've read it? There are those that hear and those that don't hear. What part of the passage makes you say that? Yeah, and even the part about the voice. Those my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice and they come out and they follow me. They hear my voice, they recognize it and they come on out. And we're going to talk about that. What does that mean? Well, um in the verses 1 through 6, what we have, we have Jesus himself says in verse 6 that we have here a figure of speech or excuse me, John says this about what Jesus says. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So he goes on to give them more information, more, um, um, more sayings. Um, but this image of sheep and shepherds, where else have you heard of this in Scripture? 23rd Psalm. The, that's the most um, popular one, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Well, throughout... The Old Testament and throughout the understanding of the people of Israel, they saw themselves as the flock of God, God's own people. And this imagery of sheep and shepherds was used to describe, first of all, um, God and his relationship with his people, and then also the relationship of the leaders within Israel to the people as well. Shepherds were used both to describe God's relationship with his people and then the relationship of his um, anointed leadership of the people. And what we'll see is that um, the anointed leadership of Israel, God saw them as really um, his representatives, his hirelings, essentially his um, his employees, you could say today, his representatives in leadership because he wasn't there in the flesh, right? He's he's not there specifically to intervene. And you see throughout the pe- history of the people of Israel that there are some leaders that do better than others. I mean, the book of Judges is just a great example of that. Some do better than others of the leaders of Israel. Um, and none of them compare to the greatness of Moses. And remember, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's this prophecy that there would be another leader, another shepherd, um, even greater than Moses, that would come and lead the people of Israel. 
But um, within, with this as its mentality, we can see, um, we're going to look at a couple of different verses from the prophets where they talk about shepherds and the relationship of shepherds to sheep. And these verses and these passages, what they do is that they, um, they inform what <coughs> Jesus is saying here in John. So I have four passages, actually five, just a couple little verses each. Um, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go. If you already read, I'm gonna. Sorry, I'm gonna pass you up. But I'm just gonna ask um, you to, um, if you don't mind, um, Faye, would yes. you be willing to look up Isaiah 40 verse 11? Okay. Um, any other volunteers who haven't read yet? Would you like to look up? Can you look up Jeremiah 23 verse 1? Anybody else? Yes, can you do Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6? Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Okay. Um, Kay, can you do Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16? Anyone else feel? Ezekiel? Do you want to do Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24? Are you ready, Faye? You want to go ahead? Okay, Faye's reading from Isaiah. We're going to go in the order that I listed it on your sheet. Okay, Isaiah 40, 11. Mm-hmm. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with him. Great. And looking at the verse that preceded it, do you want to tell us who's the he in verse 11? that will do this the Lord God the Lord God God himself is the shepherd of his people and he shepherds them and cares for them with tenderness and with particular concern for the weak right he talks about the lambs and um, the moms of the land the ewes those with the young um, caring and tending for them okay let's go to Jeremiah 23 verse 1 Yes. So if God is the real true shepherd of his people, how do you think he feels when he sees um, human leaders selfishly, or, you know, operating in their position of authority and power with selfishness, scattering the flock, destroying the sheep? In the ancient Near East, um, shepherds were actually distrusted. And you see this in um, even in, in the first century in Jesus' time because very often there would be, just like in this par- in this analogy with the people of Israel, there would be um, one shepherd or one, um, one family that owned the flock, and they would hire shepherds to go and take the flock out to pasture. And so these hired shepherds um, were supposed to act in the best interests of the owners of the flock, but very often there was distrust between the hired shepherd and the owners of the flock because, you know, you would have the flock out in the pasture and who's to say that there were five lambs that spring instead of three? You know, there might have been five and they were hungry out, you know, days out into the pasture land and they just said, well, they won't know. This will be, um, we're going to, we're going to just, this will be dinner. 
that sweet lamb will be dim, dinner. And um, so there's this distrust in that, that you couldn't be sure that they were honestly dealing with the flock and that um, if they were somewhat selfish, they might be tempted to um, gain, gain from the flock personally rather than just tending the flock on behalf of the, the owners of the flock. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was very easy to um, steal from the flock. Okay, who has the first Ezekiel passage? Great, Trudy. The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fattening, but you did not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the stray. You have not sought the lost. But with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the, all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the, all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. Hmm. The scattering of the sheep, the plundering of the flock. The shepherds are selfish for their own gain. They eat the sheep. They destroy them. They kill them and destroy them for their own um, sustenance. There's a sense of stealing also the wool. Um, so this is the Lord's pronouncement of judgment upon those leaders that lead selfishly for their own gain. And what is the Lord's solution? We're going to see that in the next passage. Uh, is that yours, Kay? Do you want to read? Um, yes. Uh, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places to which they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. I will bring them back home to their own land of Israel, among the peoples and nations. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, and by the rivers and in all the places where the people live. Yes, I will give them good pasture land on the high hills of Israel. There they will lie down in the pleasant places and feed in lush mountain pastures. I myself will tend my sheep and cause them to lie down in peace, says the Sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away, and I will bring them safely home again. I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, feed them justice. Okay. So what is God's solution to this um, problem of fallen and sinful human leaders? He'll gather them up and he himself will be the shepherd. That's what he says right in, in verse 11. He himself, he himself will intervene. God, and it's almost like God will come down. He's going to come, judgment is coming. Judgment will come for those selfish leaders and for everyone, but also he's going to take care of the flock himself. He's not going to rely on these hired hands anymore. 
So there's that part of the solution, that God himself will come down. And then um, who has the last passage? Do you want to read the last passage from Ezekiel 34? And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So there is, what do we have there? There, who is he saying will be their shepherd? David, the son of David, great David's greater son, who is the Messiah, right? The expected um, branch from David's tree. Sorry, what was, was there some, something? Where's David in this, this in the, the Where, where are we? This, yeah, in the, the, yeah, we're long after David. Ezekiel's speaking long after David's reign. David was the best king Israel ever had. The kingdom was united during David's reign. It was before there became a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ezekiel is prophesying, though, right at the time of the exile. And so he is looking forward in the midst of chaos and total destruction, the loss of their homeland, and even the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, because this is the second exile. Remember, the northern kingdom went into exile first, and then about 100 years later, the southern kingdom went into exile. Ezekiel's prophesying right around the time the southern kingdom went into exile. So in the midst of the chaos, he is pointing to the rotten leaders in Israel as part of the problem for the whole people, and saying God is going to solve it by intervening himself. He's going to first there's going to be a first-hand intervention. God will be the shepherd of his people. And then but then he also says that the son of David will be the shepherd of the people. Are we looking at one leader or two? Well, I think as we're looking at this passage and as we're looking at what Jesus said. Now remember that as Jesus is saying these words Every single person that was listening to him knew these other scriptures, knew these scriptures that we just read. So when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, he's saying, I I think, and I think John is making it very clear, Jesus is both God's own representative. He is God himself. In him, Yahweh is intervening on behalf of his people. He is going to be the shepherd for his people the good shepherd, the only good shepherd, because he's not tainted by sin. Um, every leader, then and now, and we might forget this because we might look to them in hope, even, even the leaders in our church, even us clergy, you might look to us in hope. You all know I'm, um, my flaws probably better than anybody else in the church, but, but we are each deeply flawed, sinful people. And I think when we look up to leaders um, for, um, for their leadership and for um, someone to follow, and yes, we are supposed to do that, but we might look up and expect there to be a perfection or a holiness beyond what we ourselves have. And when we don't find it, how disappointing is that? Well, that looking up, even yes, as we follow our leaders, and especially God-ordained leaders, we follow them, but we know that they are still flawed and sinful, and that the only leader who is completely sinless is Jesus Christ, because in him he is both human and divine. He is the spotless lamb. How amazing that he's both the spotless lamb and the shepherd. Um, And um, so he's saying he's both... um, In him, Yahweh is intervening on behalf of his people, and he is also human. He's great David's greater son. He is the Messiah. 
the long-expected one, here now to lead his people. So he is alluding to these things. He is making a pretty huge claim right here in front of these religious leaders. Um, and when he says, yeah, please do. People might be confused because God said he would destroy the fat and the strong. Mm-hmm. Well, we do still see that today, right? But, um, but I would say in the way that he is challenging the authorities right there and saying, you're bl- you think you see, but you're blind, remember in chapter 9, and he's alluding to God's woes to the shepherds. He's continuing on in his um, subtle or not so subtle attack on them, and, and he's trying to bring them to the point of repentance for their false leadership, for their selfish leadership. Because they think that they're without sin. And he's saying, no, you too are with sin. There isn't anyone who is without sin. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Where they do admit it and say, Jesus, you're right, we've been bad leaders. We're blind. He's, salvation has come. (laughs) Great, (laughs) we can work with that. But but to persist in saying, no, we're we're good leaders, we don't, seek our own selfish gain. That is the real problem that persists. So hence the woes, um, and hence the the question that I ask, would the real shepherd please stand up? Who is the real shepherd? And Jesus talks about different false shepherds in his little figures of speech that he uses. He talks about a stranger in verse 5. A stranger the sheep will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. He goes on in verse 10 about those who steal the flock. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And here he's not just talking about the kind of thief that would jump over the fence, but the thief that's actually already in the fence that's stealing from the flock. The hired hand, the shepherd, who would feed his own mouth at the expense of the owner of the flock and of the flock itself. Remember those false shepherds. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And then in chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, he talks about a hired hand. This also is a false shepherd. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. There has been this discussion of those who kill the sheep, those who the sheep don't recognize because they don't know his voice. And then finally here, um, a self-seeking shepherd is a coward, is not willing to entertain danger on behalf of the flock. He's going to run away if a lion or a bear or a wolf comes to eat the sheep. That is a false shepherd, just a hired hand because he doesn't care about the sheep enough to lay down his life for them or to put his life in danger for them. He flees, this is verse 13, because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus is driving it home. In these three ways, he's saying the leaders, the Pharisees, the um, religious leaders of the day are false shepherds. They are self-seeking shepherds. And then Jesus is going to put in opposition and contrast to that his own self. Well, first of all, and we'll go back to, um, well, well, let's start with the door. I am the door. Jesus is the door to the sheepfold. He is the gate. This is verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. What does that mean? What do you think that might mean? If the sheep are Israel, the sheep, the flock, is the people of Israel or the people of God, 
What does it mean that Jesus is the door? He's the only way. Were you going to say something too, Kay? Yeah, exactly. He's the only way in. He is the way into the flock. That's how, you know, a, a prospective sheep. I would like to be a part of this flock. Well, how do you get into this flock? Well, you get in through Jesus. And then if there's a dangerous, you know, the wolf, how does the wolf get into the flock? Well, he's got to go through Jesus. He's not going to get in. Jesus will protect his flock. Um, in, in the ancient, some, some sheepfolds in the ancient Near East didn't have an actual gate or a door. It was a pen and closed. Um, but then what in some places they would do is that the shepherd would lie down on the ground overnight and become the door for the actual pen so that um, he could um, stay on watch just in case anything tried to jump over the gate. You know, we, um, my friends in Amherst, some of my closest friends are beekeepers. And they hit, or they're not official beekeepers, but they like their amateur beekeepers, and they have two hives. And um, they live in bear country. And Winnie the Pooh is correct. I mean, that the, the whole A.A. Milne was right on. Bears love honey. <laughs> and I love seeing that story, but sometimes the storybook things that you see are actually true. So um, it, bears love honey, and to keep the bears out of their hives, they not only have a fence, but then they have to wire it. So they have an electric fence surrounding um, those hives. And even then, the bears, there was one not very intelligent bear, they're not generally very intelligent, that tried to get in through the electric fence. I mean, he still got in, but he probably was not feeling very good after that. <laughs> the honey, <laughs> I don't know if he came back. But so what we see here is that a predator will try to get in, and that's why the shepherd would need to stay watch and keep guard even in the middle of the night. And um, perhaps they took turns as there were multiple shepherds staying and um, keeping watch through the night over the flock. Oh, we hear that. That sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I've always liked in verse 10, I w- I've always thought about the gate, the way in, who's going to get in, and the you're right, and it, it segues right also with that I am statement that we'll look at next fall from chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, he's the way to have abundant and eternal life. Yeah, um, he's the entryway into that. Great, thank you, Donna. Um, so um, those who believe in Jesus um, enter in through him, through the very door, into the sheepfold. And this is through the redemption that comes about from his shed blood on the cross. I don't know if you, I, I figured out that our church has five or six doors, depending on which ones you're counting, but most traditional Gothic style church buildings, in the nave, there will be five doors. And as Episcopalians, very often they're painted red. Do you know why there are five and why they are painted red? One, two, three, four, five. The church enters into worship, enters into community, you know, the body of Christ through the wounds of Jesus Christ. By his blood, we are saved. By his blood, we have forgiveness of sins. 
And that is how we enter into relationship with him, relationship with each other as the people of God. And that's also how we enter into that abundant life that's available through him, both here and now, and then eternal life, on into the future extending. Have you ever heard that before? I love thinking about it when I walk into church because it gives me chills. <laughs> good, good. Um, well, so now let's keep on looking at Jesus at his next I am statement. So we've had all of this description of bad shepherds, right? And, um, you know, the bad shepherds in ancient Israel, the bad shepherds in the, the people of Israel as Jesus is talking to them right there, looking and staring at the Pharisees. And Jesus is um, alluding to those woes from the prophets about them. Woe for their selfish leading of the flock. Well, here then he goes on to describe also, interspersed between this, what um, characteristics he has as the good shepherd, how you know he's the good shepherd. Well, we know we talked already about him being both human and divine. God himself is the shepherd in him because he is, um, he is very God. He is the eternal word that existed before all creation. He is the son in the Trinity. And so for that reason, God himself is intervening as the shepherd of his people. He's the Messiah. He is the son of David. Um, secondly, I love this image. He says, um, he says that the sheep know his voice in verse 3. Um, to him, um, truly, truly, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, remember that man is the thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd. To the shepherd, the real shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. In verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads him out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So what does this mean? Well, remember how we talked about the sheep pen overnight? Well, um, multiple flocks would be in a sheep pen together. They would you know, let's bring them all together so we can all keep an eye on them and take turns, maybe, or whatever. So if there were multiple shepherds and multiple flocks all in one sheep pen, how do you know which lamb, which sheep belongs to which person or to which flock? Well, in when I, I've had the opportunity to go to England and Ireland a couple summers running, and um, the sheep are everywhere. The ubiquitous sheep in the countryside, it's just... Uh, I, and I started out taking pictures of them because I thought they were cute, and then we would see them every day, everywhere that we went. It's sort of like, okay, they're not, not as cute anymore. But, uh, <laughs> And what I thought was funny was that over there to know which flock they were from, it's so modern, so ancient and pastoral to see all these sheep. Then what they would have on their rumps, they would have spray-painted bright neon colors. This is so-and-so's sheep. This is so-and-so's. Okay, this is the neon green flock. This is the neon orange flock. This is the... It was just so weird to have that very modern juxtaposition with this ancient practice of, um, of caring for sheep. Well, in Jesus's day and age, the way that you knew which flock belonged to which shepherd was that in the morning, the shepherd would stand outside the sheep pen getting them up, right, and call out. We even think that they might have had names. Um, you know, they would call out their names, and the sheep would come. Sheep are not smart animals, but they know where to find food. They know who has fed them. Um, they know where to go to get the good things that they need to survive. 
and they're attached to their caregiver, and they know their caregiver by their caregiver's voice. How many of you have a dog? And the minute you start to call, I remember my job in our family, we always had little family jobs. My job was to feed the dog growing up. And I kid you not, at 5.30 in the evening, if hopefully I was on time, I kind of would get prodded if I was not on time. All I had to do was go and open the cabinet. And the dog was hanging on my every move. I mean, the dog just knew exactly what was going to come. And if you called the dog, the dog would come. We have one dog who um, we grew up with who absolutely adored my father. And we would just play her. She was very intelligent. And we would call her from all over the place, Lucy, Lucy, and she would come running. Or we would also say, we call my father Papa. And so us kids in the afternoon, we were bored. We had already finished our homework, and he was still at church or at work. And we'd call out, we'd go, Lucy, Papa's home. And she would bolt to the door to look for him. I mean, she just, she was so smart, and she just, she knew English, we think. But um, she knew, <laughs> she knew her name. So I think of that as one image of these sheep that know their master's name. And one more image that I'm going to give you, which is, um, I have heard read, and I heard about this because of um, all of my nine nieces and nephews. I learn a lot about babies, just because I love babies, and I have lots of them in my life. Well, infants in the womb recognize their parents' voice, both their mother and their father. They definitely know their mother's voice. But have you experienced this firsthand or secondhand that um, the moment that a child is born, very often they're crying. It's that getting those lungs to work, right? Um, but have you ever seen the mother who's just given birth speak to her newborn baby? I've seen this because I got to be there when my sister um, gave birth to her fourth child. And she just started she had worked so hard, and she was probably in a lot of pain. She just started crooning at him. Oh, she already had the name picked out. Oh, Peter. Oh, I'm so glad to see your face. He calmed down. He knew her voice. And he knew who had been feeding him all those months, sustaining him. And that is like us. We are like um, that dog. We are like that baby. We know our master's voice. We know where the good things come from. We know who will provide for us and take care of us and protect us. And so we hear our master's voice. Jesus is the true um, shepherd, the good shepherd. And when we hear his voice, we come running. Well, finally, what makes Jesus the good shepherd? Well, the good shepherd will defend his sheep. We see this in verse 11b, 15b, and 17b. I like saying b, so you know where to look in the verse. Um, he repeats it three times. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. They know me and I lay down my life for them. I'm in um, 15b right there. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd is not afraid to suffer and die even on behalf of those who belong to him, to bring those who know him into everlasting life, to protect them, to preserve them. And Jesus himself does that, and he says it over and over again. He says this, and we hold this in mind as he would go later on in John's gospel to the cross. Um, 
he will lay down his life for the sheep. So let's it is definitely referring to the crucifixion. You see it, um, you see it again in um, chapter 18 as Jesus is being arrested in Gethsemane. Um, he says, um, or there is this sense in which um, he is there um, to protect his disciples. You see it in verse 9. Um, eight and nine, he says, I am he, I'm the one you're looking for. Leave them alone. Let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus there, it's very tangible. He's protecting his disciples. He doesn't want any of them to be arrested and tried and killed the way he knew that he would be. Jesus voluntarily lays down his life for his friends. And he, as the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep, for us. So let's pray, and then you can ask me whatever questions you want. So, O Lord Jesus Christ, we look to you, our good shepherd. Teach us to hear your voice, to know your voice, to know the good things that come from you. And above all else, we know the best thing, which is the forgiveness that we have through you, through um, your death for us, through the fact that you as the Good Shepherd laid down your life for us. Thank you for that. We give you praise and honor and glory and thanks. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.